Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. Every state in America is a border state right now. This catastrophe can come to an end if the Biden administration will do its job and they've refused to do it. They're doing the opposite. The feds are taking Texas to court over immigration policy. It's Thursday, January 4th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, breaking up with glitter. It's made of microplastics, which helps explain why once it's on you, it never seems to leave. How and why to make your life a little less glittery. Also, Dan Jurgen on 2024's Energy Outlook. And it's not all oil and gas. Hydrogen, that's a big hope. Small nuclear reactors. And then nature-based solutions. Can you capture carbon with plants? But first, that was House Speaker Mike Johnson we heard at the top of the show. He was one of a group of Republican lawmakers who took a field trip to the border yesterday to slam President Biden's immigration policy as this election year gets underway. It's not just posturing, though. There is something happening. In December, border agents recorded 250,000 illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border, the highest one-month total ever. Texas recently responded by letting local authorities arrest and deport migrants, and now the Biden administration is suing the state over that law. Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security for The Washington Post. Here's his conversation with Scott Tong. These illegal crossings at the southern border, they are, according to the head of Customs and Border Patrol, unprecedented. Who is crossing and why? Well, it's it's people from all over the world. I mean, it's a it's a wider range of countries than we've ever seen before. Uh, about half of them are family groups. Uh, many of them are young men, and they're coming for a range of, you know, what we call push and pull factors, economic opportunity. Some are looking for safety and security. But many of them have the perception that this is a, a, a unique opportunity and a, a good time to come to the United States. And they're hearing from their friends and, and relatives who are making this trip that, that it's a good time to come. And they're, and they're making mm-hmm. this, this journey often from, from many you know, great long distances. Yeah, we just heard uh, the the quote from uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson. He went with about 60 other Republican members of Congress, called the border situation a disaster. Republicans and Democrats are now debating an aid bill to Israel and Ukraine that would include border and migration changes. Remind us, what are the main things the Republicans are lobbying for? Well, there are really two different Republican uh, strategies here. One is the the supplemental negotiations that are happening in the Senate. Um, That's a a bipartisan group that is discussing changes that would tighten up the asylum system, that would make it easier to to deport people who don't qualify for protection. Um, And those talks have, you know, we're hearing have have made progress. The issue, though, is that House Republicans are, are, are demanding 
much broader changes, many of which uh, have been described by Democratic leaders and the White House as non-starters. And, mm. and they're digging in. They feel like they have the real political advantage here. So even if the Senate uh, negotiations bear fruit, it's going to be up to uh, Speaker Mike Johnson to bring any legislation to the floor. And that's a big question. And as for the White House, what is the pressure there? On one hand, it wants this war funding legislation, but it's being squeezed by these Republicans on the right and immigration advocacy groups on the left. Yeah, I mean, the Biden administration is really in a bind here. And, uh, you know, setting aside the Ukraine and Israel funding components of this, which are complicated uh, on their own, um, you know, they, after after a month, uh, you know, where we saw 250,000 people come across the border over the, over the next few weeks, we're going to start to see the downstream impacts of that on cities like Chicago, Denver, and New York that are already overwhelmed and, uh, and, and asking for help from the federal government. And so the Biden administration is, is facing, you know, financial pressures there, as well as the, the political pressures of an election year. And an issue which in which you know they're they're uh, you know polling very negatively, and the Republicans appear to have the advantage. Mm. Nick, uh, Texas has a new law about to take effect in March. It would let state troopers arrest migrants in the state illegally, and let Texas judges order people deported. Now, the Biden Justice Department has sued to block this law. What is the federal government's argument here? I mean, immigration is a federal matter, and and it's that 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 part is is pretty cut and dry, um, and so you know I think that Governor Abbott in Texas, uh, you know, has been taking several measures, uh, you know, using state resources to 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 try to crack down, but ultimately, you know, the state of Texas can't deport people back to Colombia or Venezuela. Uh, or even to Mexico, they have to turn, even if they arrest someone, uh, they have to turn them over to federal authorities. And so, um, you know, I, 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 don't, I expect that the, that the courts are likely to uphold, you know, the federal supremacy in, in this regard. Now, the supremacy clause, uh, where, where federal law uh, supersedes, in many cases, state law. Um, okay. Uh, you know, uh, briefly, Nick, at the border towns, uh, Eagle Pass, El Paso, the U.S. government closed some cargo rail crossings a few days back in response to the number of migrants crossing. Are they back over now, as far as you know? Are they back open? Yeah. So so just today, the U.S. is, is uh, Customs and Border Protection is reopening four crossings that were that were suspended. Um, either to vehicle traffic or to pedestrians, but this is something that we have seen uh, CBP do in the past, and really, uh, you know, across uh, for the last two administrations, it's it's sort of the one card that they can play to try to put more pressure on Mexico because when those those crossings, those official crossings, are closed to commerce and to to people crossing, you know, even on a daily basis, it's incredibly uh, damaging. And, and does, you know, really ratchet up pressure on Mexico to take more of an enforcement role in terms of stopping migrants heading to the U.S. border. I mean, these large numbers of migrants crossing, do we expect those numbers to continue to be high uh, going into, you know, early 2024? Well, we've seen, you know, we saw, we've seen a holiday lull uh, uh, similar mm. to what we saw last year, but often these numbers rebound quickly in, in January and certainly in the spring, uh, in the spring months when, right. um, when hiring picks up. Mm -hmm. Nick Miroff of The Washington Post. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. Anytime. Coming up next, if you're feeling anxious about microplastic pollution, 
maybe it's time to stop wearing glittery makeup. When we return, Robin Young hears why one journalist who covers the beauty industry says it's time to break up with glitter. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. If you were lucky enough to see Taylor Swift on the Eras Tour or Beyonce on the Renaissance Tour, weren't they just glittering? And maybe so were you. Glitter in your makeup, ornate swirls around your eyes, highlight those cheekbones, sprinkle it on nails. But after the show is over, where does glitter go? Well, it washes off into landfills or waterways where it lives for a thousand or more years, impacting water, wildlife, because glitter is a microplastic, aluminum metallicized polyethylene terephthalate, to be precise. Now how do you feel about it? Well, beauty journalist Jessica DeFino has been calling for giving up glitter in makeup in the unpublishable. That's a beauty newsletter. Jessica, it's glitter. It can make people feel empowered. Explain your thinking. Sure. I do not support glitter in cosmetics because glitter is just a nice sounding way to say microplastic. The big problem with plastic, as I'm sure most people know, is that it's made from fossil fuels. It lasts forever. It doesn't break down. Instead, over hundreds of years, it breaks up into smaller and smaller microplastic particles, which go on to infiltrate the water supply, the air, soil, animals, and even human bodies, causing negative health effects to people and the planet. And when I am buying and applying makeup, I personally find it very empowering to live according to my values and my principles. And I think a lot of people find that empowering, uh, more empowering than glitter even. But as you well know, you're up against TikTok. Uh, let's yes. listen to Here's a makeup influencer, Michaela Noguera. She's trying on a Dior lipstick that goes on as a matte, just plain, flat, but transforms into a glittery finish when you press your lips together. Let's listen. Okay, here we go. Um, do you see that? The more you press... The more the glitter shows up. I can't believe I didn't know about products like this. These are so cool for like special occasions. It is pretty cool, Jessica DeFino. And even Dr. Victoria Miller at North Carolina State, who told the New York Times in 2018 that she believes glitter is not at all good for the environment, mm. also said, but we've got bigger fish to fry. So again, could you make your case that something that provides so much joy when there doesn't seem to be a lot and seems like such a small thing, it's just there on your right. lips... 
Why, again, should people break up with glitter? I would say on the macro level, we may need to to rethink our concepts of joy and happiness and why something that causes so much environmental destruction signals joy to us and maybe rework those definitions. (laughs) Um, But I also think just the way that glitter works in real life is a good metaphor for how it works in the environment. You know, it sheds, it spreads, it ends up everywhere. It's your decision to wear it, but many people end up contaminated with it and have to wash off your glitter at the end of the night, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's sort of how it works on the planet level as well. Our decision to wear glitter, which yes, is a small individual decision, but actually adds up to billions and billions of dollars in the cosmetic industry, ends up having, you know, downstream consequences. And and when we're dealing with the climate crisis as we are, I think every little step counts. Well, you say billions. 580 billion by 2027 is one estimate mm-hmm. for how big the beauty market is going to get. You know, what What is an alternative? How do you start getting people excited about something that's not glitter? It's tricky with glitter because there are slightly more eco-friendly options. Mica is one option. This is like a, a more subtle sort of shimmer. It's used in a lot of shimmery cosmetic products, um, just like the Dior lipstick that was in that TikTok that we listened to. And then there's plant-based glitter. Um, So a lot of these are billed as more eco-friendly options. But recent studies show that these also can have negative effects on aquatic environments and microalgae when they are washed off of our faces and into the drain. So it's tricky because there are slightly better options, but there is really no such thing as a sustainable glitter. So personally, what I think we should do is explore other ways of, of finding joy and expressing ourselves that don't require us to wash microplastics into our water supply. Right. And as you well know, uh, the U.S. did try to ban microbeads, a subset of microplastics, because yes. of concerns about the water supply. But there right. was a loophole because the ban mm-hmm. only applied to products that were going to exfoliate or cleanse the body. And uh, there's still, as you note, microplastic makeup in production. Maybe if there was some sort of an ad campaign that showed people, you know, uh, luxuriously spreading, you know, pieces of Coca-Cola bottles <laughs> over their face right. to remind them what it really is. Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that we can spread this message. Like you mentioned, art is really powerful. Personally, I think journalism is very powerful to just inform people because I do think a lot of glitter lovers are maybe just not aware that it's microplastic. And if they are, they might make different decisions. And then I also want to stress the importance of contacting your legislators because scientists have been calling for a ban on cosmetic glitter for quite a while now. The European Union just put this ban into place this year. So there are nations that are doing it, and there's no reason the U.S. should not. Yeah. Beauty journalist Jessica Defino who wants us to break up with glitter and makeup. She writes the unpublishable of Beauty Newsletter. Jessica, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, world leaders recently agreed, under a lot of pressure, to promise to transition away from fossil fuels. Someday. But oil and gas production are still going up. After the break, Scott asks Dan Jurgen to forecast the energy trends and stories that will drive 2024. Stick around. 
From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. On the Code Switch Podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch Podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR network. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. Fossil fuels are on track to be phased out in the coming decades. That's according to pledges from the latest UN Climate Summit. For now, though, oil and gas remain central to the world economy and to geopolitics. Take the Middle East and Russia and Ukraine. Those conflicts interact with oil revenues, money to pay for current wars, and the movement of oil and gas in world energy markets. All that paints an unclear picture of what to expect in the year ahead. So let's talk about that, energy present, energy future, with Dan Jurgen. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and vice president at S&P Global. Dan Jurgen, so good to have you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You know, as we're speaking in early 2024, gallon of gasoline costs about three bucks on average in the U.S. A barrel of oil on the international market is 70-some dollars, so relatively affordable. We have a war in the Middle East. We're reading about the Houthi militants attacking ships in the Red Sea. Why are oil prices not freaking out? Well, in the old days, prices really would have, as you say, freaked out. They would have been spiking. I think the big difference here is the incredible growth of production in North America, particularly the United States. Now you have this big supply. The United States today is by far the world's largest producer of oil, which is quite a turnaround from a decade and a half ago when it was the world's largest importer of oil. Yeah. So the big buyers of oil, the market participants, the traders, the buyers and sellers, they see the situation and they see buyers having a bit of comfort because they know they can get a fair bit of oil from another place, the United States. That's right. Basically, the supply is there. Frankly, for somebody who's running for president like Joe Biden, this is very good news because gasoline prices are surprisingly low given the disruptions we're seeing in other parts of the world. Yeah. Oil, of course, is an important piece of the war in Ukraine. Russia invaded nearly two years ago now. We know the European Union, the G7 countries, tried to push back and punish Russia by punishing its oil companies and trying to set what they call the price cap. So they don't receive more than $60 for every barrel of oil they export. A lot of analysts think that's failed. Has it failed? Let me put it this way. It worked until it didn't work. 
and it didn't work when oil prices started to go way up. The reason for the price cap is because Russia depends so heavily on oil and gas revenues, like almost half of its budget. So that's what finances a large part of its war. So this idea was we will put a cap on oil, Russian oil, and we won't allow Russian oil into uh, Europe. And so that worked for about a year or so. But now, as uh, the Russian deputy prime minister said the other day, they've been back to normal in a sense. Their revenues are up because they figured out how to reconfigure their supplies. So instead of sending supplies to Europe, which was half of their market, they're now sending it to countries like India and a lot more oil to China. And in India and China, they're willing to pay... The market price, not well, the lower price been cap? Willing to pay the market price, and they would ask maybe for some discount compared to other prices. So now that the Russians are getting good money now for the oil that they export, does that put Russia in a financially comfortable position to fight this war for many years? Yeah, well, it certainly is. It has done exactly that. Russia is expanding its kind of military industrial structure. Yeah. Uh, Dan Jurgen, I want to kind of step back and you know, talk about oil and gas in the long-term energy picture. You perhaps were at or watching the climate summit recently where governments agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. There were debates, fights over the language, an earlier version reportedly said phase out, but they agreed on transitioning away from fossil fuels, right? You consult to energy companies in practical terms, what does transition away mean well, in English? Yeah, I've talked to both companies and I talk to governments a lot about it. I think that word transition is a very elastic term. I got very interested when I was writing the, my new book, The New Map, with hearing people constantly talk about the energy transition. So I said, okay, let's look at all the previous energy transitions. And I think that narrative about previous transitions is very helpful for having a framework for what we're seeing right now, because normally energy transitions take a century, and they're really energy additions. And if I can give you one example, Scott, yeah. oil discovered in western Pennsylvania in 1859. The Drake oil well. Right. Yep. And in 1960s, oil overtakes coal as the world's number one energy source. But guess what? Today, the world uses three times as much coal as it did in the 1960s, and that was the most coal ever used. So those are what energy transitions have been up till now. Here you're saying in a quarter century, completely to change the energy foundations of what is a $105 trillion economy today. That's a very tough thing to make happen. So the goal of these UN conferences is to reach what they describe as net zero emissions by 2050. If you had to put money on it in 2024, are we going to get there? I would say that some countries can get there. But if you take India, China, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Russia, none of them have 2050 goals. They're 2060 or 2070, and they're 45% of emissions. So I think the direction is clear, and a lot of progress is being made. But I think the challenge is still considerable. Yeah. Well, you're a few feet away from your recent book, The New Map, where you try to look into this future. When you think about the technologies that will deliver us from here to there, whenever we get there, what's at the top of your list? Well, I think the International Energy Agency has said that half the technologies that you need to get to 2050 are not yet commercially mm. deployed. I think people are looking 
at hydrogen. That's a big hope because it's one molecule replacing another. I think we're seeing this focus on small nuclear reactors being part of the mix. Obviously, electric vehicles, but then the question is, how are those vehicles powered? And then nature-based solutions. Can you capture carbon with plants and creating carbon markets that would spur innovation? Hmm. Now, Dan Jurgen, you've been one of the most influential voices in the world energy conversation for a generation now, and your book, The Prize, was a long story about oil. For listeners who would say, well, hold on, now this guy is a consultant to many fossil fuel industries and companies. Why should we look to the future, think about the future, and listen to his vision? Well, first, let me say that I'm also a consultant to uh, renewable energy companies, to people who are electric cars. Battery storage is another area which is very important because if you have battery storage of electricity, that really changes the game and that's a frontier. So I really talk across the whole tier of this. And I think the answer is I've tried to be uh, studious and objective in research. For instance, I got very interested in, okay, if we have this energy transition, we're going to need a lot more mining a lot more metals. What's going to be the supply of that? So I spent some time, eight months, learning about copper. And copper is the metal of electrification mm -hmm. because you need to wire things. You know, an electric car takes two and a half times more copper uh, than a conventional car. So basically, if you want to achieve those 2050 goals, by about 2035, world copper production has to double. Well, that's a pretty big challenge since it takes about 20 years to open and develop a, a, a new, a major new mine. Dan Jurgen, his most recent book is The New Map, and uh, always good to talk to you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. That's our show. It comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Koyani Saxena, Gabrielle Healy, and Thomas Danielian. Today's editors were Julia Corcoran, Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Micaela Rodriguez. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Patrick O'Connor. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.